Hey folks, this is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett, joined here by Simon Foster. Simon, look, we're recording this on a good Friday, and because we're recording this podcast, clearly it's a great Friday. But my question to you, sir, it is Good Friday. Do you celebrate any sort of Easter-type things? Like, what's the traditions in your household? No, I don't. And I've got, hello, Dan. Hello, everyone listening. Um, No, I'm not. I'm quite a heathen in that regard. I don't follow any of the um, sanctioned... Uh, religious, you know, um, uh, undertakings that, that that the good Lord asks of us on these special occasions. So, no, I don't. Do you? Is your household one of cellophane and chocolate, or is there a, a, a church service involved? So, I mean, no church service. Uh, basically, it's a bit of a weird year in that for the last seven years I've been living interstate, and for six of those, we just decided it was too hard to make the trip from interstate back home. So we used to just sort of ride uh, Easter out and we just hang out at home. But the difference between those last seven years and this year is that we've found ourselves back in Brisbane. We're house hunting and we're staying with my parents. Mm. Now, my mum, while not a religious person really, does have this thing on East on Good Friday, does not want to eat meat. So she holds on to that. Whereas I abandoned that six and a half years ago. So <laughs> we are currently, um, I guess, like we're not even like we're crazy about meat. But when you can't have something, Simon... Boy, oh boy, do you want it bad. <laughs> no, I thought you'd say something funny, but how about we start with a theme Let's song? Let's do a theme song, yeah, we'll get to it. <laughs> this is not like TV only battle. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. So look, this is screen watching. It's not a podcast where we talk about our religious or cultural leanings. No. Instead, we talk about our cultural leanings in the form of television and all things screen and culture. So I guess movies as well, if we must. Yeah, we have to talk movies. Movies are an important part. You, we all know that. But you have got an interesting bunch of things to talk about this week. Uh, mine are also on the verge of sort of being interesting. Um, new Sandra Bullock, <laughs> new Javier Bardem, and a terrific new movie called Everything Everywhere All at Once are what I'll be covering. What are you up to? I'm looking at a brand new Amazon Prime video series called Outer Range, mm. which stars one Josh Brolin. I've also got a new Apple TV Plus show with an all-star cast called Raw and a series which could not be more timely to discuss. It's called Servant of the People. Folks, this is a pretty good podcast you're about to strap yourself into because once we get past the review part, we are talking about one of my favourite subjects of all time, TV theme songs. We're going to dive into that. But before we can get to the good stuff, let's do a little bit of vegetables before the delicious dessert. We're going to do some TV and movie reviews. It stinks. Simon Foster, do you want to kick things off? Do you want to talk about the new Sandra Bullock movie? It's called The Lost City. Listen, Loretta, we need you to promote your new book on The Lost City. You can't spend your life in the bathtub drinking Chardonnay with eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, the world's sexiest cover model, Dash McMahon! You do know you're not Dash, right? Dash is a character I made up. Dash! I, I, oh my god. Uh, there is something so refreshing in watching true movie stars give their big screen charisma room to breathe, and Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum take some very deep breaths in the jungle adventure, The Lost City. Now, Bullock, who i got to say, and don't take this the wrong way, but she looks absolutely stunning in this film in a way that 
Maybe she hasn't fully exploited in many of her films to her credit. She plays Loretta Sage, a best-selling romance novelist who's just about had enough of her own vacuous airport readings. She's ready to kill off her franchise staples, including Dash, her broad-chested, blonde Adonis hero brought to life by cover model Alan uh, Channing Tatum. Not what Alan wants to hear, quite frankly, with his shirtless public appearances being his primary source of income. But in Loretta's latest pulp writings are clues to a hidden city and jeweled headdress that don't go unnoticed by scumbag billionaire Abigail Fairfax, played by a very funny Daniel Radcliffe. Abigail kidnaps Loretta, assuming she'll guide him to the buried treasure, and setting in motion a rescue attempt by Alan that borders on the buffoonish. Um, when chemistry is strained and the material of weak, these sort of romps look and feel like Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt in Jungle Cruise, but in the hands of a gifted comedian like Bullock and a goofball hunk like Tatum, The Lost City occasionally feels like the Michael Douglas Kathleen Turner classic of its kind romancing the stone. When our leads aren't on screen and the story has to be moved along, the very thin and silly veneer of a plot becomes obvious, but as a means by which to get to the next Bullock Tatum giggly bits, it'll do. Of added benefit is Brad Pitt in an extended cameo as an ex-military black hop who is called upon to lead the, the snivelling Allen in the early stages of the rescue mission. Pitt also riffs on his own physical ass- assets with as much energy and charm as Channing Tatum does. And while it's all very broad shtick, it's also very funny. This is just a good time, two-hour time waster, and you can do a whole lot worse than settle into it this Easter weekend. So when I first heard about this movie, I thought Sandra Bullock in a Romance in the Stone type comedy sounds like a great idea. Then I watched the trailer and I thought to myself, why don't I just rewatch Romancing the Stone? Yeah, I think Romancing the Stone, which is one of my favourite movies, is is a lot more grounded. This one sort of goes off in um, kind of Dora the Explorer type territory, which doesn't do the yeah. more mature stars any favours in this. They've got to sort of pull off some plot machinations, which are kind of daft. Um, but... At the core of it, the relationship between Channing and Sandra is every bit as strong as the one between Kathleen and Michael in Romancing the Stone. So, yeah, it it falls short of that sort of milestone of of the genre. Um, But just seeing these two stars, especially Bullock, who just seems to be really energised and in a... I don't say energized in a worked up or excitable kind of way, but she's she's bringing a comedic touch which we haven't seen in other films of hers for quite some time. So it's just good to see these two stars having a bit of fun on the screen. It, it feels like they're having fun. Look, I'd probably be more inclined to watch this than to watch Romancing the Stone and think, you know what, good idea, let's watch Jewel of the Night. <sighs> I probably wouldn't do that. I might sit here and watch this film instead, but even so... I'm not seeing this as a replacement for the 80s classic. No, and Jewel of the Nile, which was one of the very first times I felt like, ugh, sequels are terrible. Because it would, I, <laughs> I remember thinking, gee, I love the first film and everything just feels so forced and mechanical about this sequel. So um, that's a shame. There should be a sequel to this one. I think it's done pretty well at the US box office and it should do well over the, the holiday period here. Yeah, I think it's done reasonably okay. Yeah. Simon, let's move on. I want to talk to you about a brand new TV series that's called Outer Range. I'm looking for the Abbott Ranch. Yeah, we're not a tourist ranch. No, I'm just looking to camp. Only be a few days. Autumn. Royal. Glad to finally meet you. Why are you here? Yeah, could you really make out anything in that? Not really. Boy, no. is this a... 
It's like Christopher Nolan did the audio editing on the series. Look, if I told you there's a TV show that's basically Yellowstone, but with a strong Twin Peaks vibe, Ooh. would that be something you're interested in? Yes, and if the it answer would. Is yes, yeah, well, there we go. Boy, do I have the show for you. Josh Brolin starts as a rancher who starts hearing noises outside. Investigating one Sunday morning by himself, he finds that everything feels a bit off. There's Vuvuzela's hype noises. And then when he comes back from home, his wife says they're almost running late for church. His watch says it's nearly 8am, but everyone else says it's almost 10am. Wow, weird. I wonder if that's got anything to do with the reference Brolin makes to Kronos in the narration that opens the show. Now, his family has been through some turmoil. He's got two adult sons that live with him. One's a ne'er-do-well guy who compensates by... Sorry, he competes in local radio competitions. And the other is a bit older, and he's making peace with the world following the disappearance of his wife, who's also the mother of his daughter. Wow, weird. I wonder if the disappearance of her has anything to do with the weirdness that Brolin's experiencing out in his land. And look, there's... A nearby family who's aggressively trying to make a claim on Brolin's land. And in the first episode, there's a drunken altercation outside a bar, which heats up the situation, which in turn leads to a really tense finale in the first episode. And also, what's the deal with the poet chick who's asked to camp on Brolin's family land? It almost seems like she's up to something. And all of that's a little bit weird. But it's not quite as weird as the giant hole that uh, Brolin finds. It's almost the perfect circle, and the hole is dark and mysterious. It seems to have no sides or bottom. It's just misty and black. Wow, weird. I wonder if that's got anything to do with, well, everything else. (laughs) And look, there's something about Outer Range that feels a little bit cynical in its design. It's as though somebody wrote down all the elements they wanted from a show and then set out to draw them together. And that isn't to say the show isn't a little bit compelling... And though it certainly is, but it's not as compelling as the show hopes that it is. And there's a lack of authenticity to its oddity. It's almost as though there's a bit of a normie writer who likes the idea of being as odd as David Lynch. And real talk, as if the Twin Peaks revival series isn't a big creative inspiration for the series here and the mood and tone, like the entire series desperately, desperately, desperately wants to be Twin Peaks 2017. Out of range, it's enjoyable enough, and certainly in the closing minutes of the first episode, I found myself well and truly drawn in, but there's a sense all the way through this, the creative vision is about as substantial as that big old black hole in the middle of the paddock. The trailer hooked me in. This was off my radar, I must say. As are some of the Amazon titles, I'm not getting a lot of word um, about some of the Amazon shows here in Australia, but this one with with Dan Barrett looking like Josh Brolin in the lead. Imogen Poots is a big plus. Will Patton is you know a must watch you know classic sort of who is that guy actor who's just been in so much good stuff. Um, I'm going to seek this one out. The, the, it, it, the, the time um, missing sort of period that you alluded to at the start of the review that's very alien abduction type of uh, mythology so that's got me hooked because you know i'm a mad keen ufo guy um I've got, i'm gonna check this out the trailer uh in trying to cut together a clip for it last night which i failed miserably at thanks dan for um for throwing that my way and sorry i couldn't help out but look it's <laughs> yeah it, it's kind of has me hooked in i'm i'm keen to see where the the, the next few episodes go yeah, look, I wouldn't necessarily be looking so much towards alien abduction, and I'd look more a little bit more like things like The Endless, which plays around with chronal disruption. Okay. Somewhat. What's chronal yeah. disruption? What's What do you mean? Like time, dis- we'll say time disruption. Oh, okay, sure. Okay. Oh, chronology. Yeah. Sure. I understand. All right. It's on <laughs> It's on Amazon Prime as we speak. Surely with that cast and, and that kind of pedigree, they'd have high hopes for it, wouldn't they? This would be one of their more upmarket, more prestige titles for the year. 
Yeah, I don't understand the Amazon promotional cycle. Mm. They kind of feel as though they can just throw anything up and people will start watching it or talking about it, but that's proven to be not the case at all. Mm. And it's only when they put some real marketing behind it that things get a bit zeitgeisty for Amazon. Like think about, say, the Jack Ryan series, for example. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Remember all the bus shop, uh, bus shelves rides and everything you saw around for that. And then suddenly people talking about that show. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Whereas this, like, there's absolutely a market for it, but whether they'll know it exists, that's the big question. It's called Outer Range. It is on Amazon Prime Video as we speak. It's a good week for fans of international cinema. I saw a movie called The Good Boss. International cinema? Wait a sec. Does that mean a foreign language clip is about to await? <laughs> I love it. God, he speaks he's, the Spanish in this is so beautiful. Javier Bardem is who you heard there. He plays Blanco, the CEO of one of Spain's most successful manufacturers of scales, which is a clear indication that an underlying theme of Fernando Leon de Aronia's film will be about balance, or, or more precisely, imbalance. We meet Blanco at Bardem's most warmly charismatic. He is delivering an inspirational address to his gathered team of workers, boasting of quote-unquote family values and everyone's importance to the company, which is instantly a red flag to me, having sat in on these sort of pep talks only to be the first to go when profits thin out. Now, undermining his speech are the rantings of Jose Oscar de la Fuente, a disgruntled ex-employee angry at his dismissal and who plans to make life very uncomfortable for Blanco, the last thing the boss needs with a council committee committee in town to inspect the plant ahead of the annual business awards. The finely honed running of the factory is further threatened with the arrival of the outrageously sexy marketing intern Liliana, played by Almudina Amor, who is irresistible to Blanco and his alpha male need to conquer everything. Soon the power dynamics of the factory floor and the desperate immorality that Blanco starts to exhibit to get his way twist in on themselves. The Good Boss is an uncomfortable comedy drama, one in which you find yourself laughing at terrible people doing awful things to each other to get their own way. Aaron Noah, who also wrote the script, says he drew upon the Billy Wilder, Willie Wilder workplace classic The Apartment to tell Bianca's sorry, to tell Blanco's story. And it's clear that like Jack Lemmon's salesman willing to rent his single bed flat to his philandering bosses to get ahead, the good boss is peopled with characters willing to compromise their humanity in order to maintain their status quo. The good boss cleaned up at the Spanish Oscars, the Goya Awards late last year, winning eight of its 20 nominations, including best film and best actor and script. And it's easy to see why it is very slick, very clever, very complex entertainment, which I would also compare to James L. Brooks's broadcast news in its dissection of workplace manoeuvring. I thought this was a great film. Um, head on over to our YouTube channel. I interviewed the director, Fernando Leon de Oronia, through the week, um, and he had some wonderful things to say about working with Javier and about getting this kind of story right in the current workplace in, um, climate. So uh, terrific film. The Good Boss is in limited release around the country. Yeah, there's a strong chance I'll check this one out. Not in the cinema. Heaven forbid I'll leave the house. <laughs> but someday, someday. Yeah, someday you should see it with the big subtitles up there on the big screen. Yeah. Hey, look, I'm going to talk to you about a new Apple TV Plus series. It's called Raw. It's mommy's first day back to the office this week. I don't want you to go. Don't go. They're not brave like you. They're too scared to do. 
Ta-da! Wow. Uh, is it for your golf trophies? It's for you. Man, talk about a tenuous collection of stories. Raw is the latest anthology series to launch on a streaming service, and like so many of these anthology shows, there's just nothing that really ties them together to be a worthwhile creative exercise. The official logline for Raw is this, an insightful, poignant, and sometimes hilarious portrait of what it means to be a woman today, featuring a unique blend of magical realism, familiar domestic and professional scenarios, and futuristic worlds. In other words, it's basically a collection of stories about women experiencing challenges, successes, and failures, but with 30-ish minute episodes, none of the stories feels especially substantial. Now, I watched the first episode of this with my wife. That episode has Issa Rae as an author who travels to LA to meet with Hollywood execs who've optioned her memoir, but the plan is to exploit her and her life story. This process has her feeling kind of invisible, which, plot twist, she does kind of turn invisible. Now, she's kind of invisible until she isn't anymore which happens just a few minutes towards the end of the episode for no specific reason. It's all a bit clunky, and at the end of the episode, my wife asked whether we should watch the next episode. I mentioned to her it's an anthology series. I watched her consider it for a moment, and then she said, eh, that's stupid, and then she went to bed. (laughs) And that's the thing. I think as viewers, we're willing to put a bit of faith in a story that seemingly doesn't have a lot of bite to it if there's the promise that there's opportunities to further explore that world and situation. But these anthology shows with bite-sized episodic entries just don't work so well in this day and age of streaming options where viewers have far more active viewing decisions to be made. Now Raw is from the same creative team that are behind the really fun Netflix series Glow, and that got me thinking about Glow in the context of an anthology series. There's nothing wrong with an anthology series per se. If Glow was an anthology show where we saw every episode as a complete story from a different perspective of one of the gorgeous ladies of wrestling, and the anthology show was telling the story of a scrappy wrestling league, that would feel substantial. There's actually something to anchor it then. But Raw isn't that. It's just disconnected stories about women doing stuff. Okay, sure, whatever. Let me end it though on a positive note. The show at least has a really good cast in it. You'll find episodes including the aforementioned Issa Rae, Nicole Kidman's in this, Merritt Weaver, Alison Bray, Betty Gilpin, Judy Davis, and more. And that's all right, I guess. Okay, yeah, this has been on my radar. I've had a week full of full of watching science fiction films from all over the world because I'm a festival. But this one, because of that cast, has, has drawn me in. Um, it, I guess it continues the Apple TV sort of model of creating less content, but it being of a, a fairly high sort of pedigree, at least, even if the finished product isn't so crash shot. Yeah, is that translation for, like, sorry, code, really, for let's just give a whole lot of money to the series? Yeah. Because, I mean, that's pretty much what it is. They get these great casts, great cinematography, great production aesthetic, all from the money they're throwing at it. Yeah. But I do think that this is probably the, I think, third anthology series, maybe fourth from Apple in the course of a year and a half. And of those, one of them was kind of an interesting creative exercise. The rest have all been a bit of a dud. Okay. And the cre- the best one, I think, being Little America, which was at least sort of a collection of stories about the immigrant experience of the US and looking at that through various types of permeations. Okay. But even so, I mean, that was a little bit tenuous at best as well. All right, it's called Raw. Now, is that R-A-W or R-O-A-R? This is not like the uh, French uh, cannibal movie Raw, which is R-A-W. This is more like the movie where Melanie Griffith was fighting a tiger. 
and that's R-O-A-R. Okay, so it's not like the Eddie Murphy stand-up gig, uh, R-A-W. It's more like the Tiffany, Tippy Hedron, Melanie Griffith one. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. Okay, good. It's called Raw. It's on I was Apple really TV. hoping you got to bring out a different Raw then to really bring like four deliveries of this, but here we are. <laughs> All right, I'm going to have a look at an interesting film and try not to say too much about it. It's called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Question, before we get into this, would this make for a good double feature by watching this and then Out of Range? Now, without knowing that much about Out of Range, maybe. They're certainly coming from two very different angles, but this is definitely a big screen movie. In the multiverse, you can live up to your ultimate potential. What's happening? You discovered a way to temporarily link your consciousness to another version of yourself. Accessing all of the memories and skills. It's called first jumping. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is one of the best films I've seen in ages, but I'm not going to dwell on it too much. The, the more plot revealed before you head into this remarkable film, the less you'll be inclined to follow its twists and turns. In brief, it is the story of a woman watching her life slide into irrelevance. The great Michelle Yeoh plays Evelyn, a laundrette owner who is facing an IRS audit. Her husband, Wayman, played by Ki-Hu Kwan, who many will remember as the young boy in The Goonies and has um, Harrison Ford's offsider in Temple of Doom. He keeps his spirits up, but her gay teen daughter Joy, played by Stephanie Hassel, certainly wants to stay connected to her, but everything about this family family's world is becoming increasingly pointless. Um, but is it their world? So about now, I'm going to toss up clues like multiverse and fractured realities, and I'm going to leave it at that. Suffice to say that directors Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, who credit themselves as the Daniels on screen, they bring an emotional core to this stunningly imaginative work that is entirely unexpected. It is such confident filmmaking. They establish the rules of their premise very clearly, make sure the audience is fully invested in both their ideas and in the character, characters and then they come at it from a really humanistic perspective rarely seen in these type of genre films it is so filled with surprising turns um, including producer jamie lee curtis in a brilliant support part to try to capture its vibrancy in a review is is aimless is pointless it is such an invigorating emotional work of the imagination the kind that was hinted at in the daniel's last film swiss army man but which goes to whole new levels here I do want to point out, I want to get on my soapbox here a little bit. If you're one of these any screen or do movie watchers, happy to comment on how disappointing you thought that Oscar-winning film was having watched it on the train on your phone between Gosford and Central this morning, just zip forward through my review because more than any film this year, everything, everywhere, all at once um, deserves to be seen within the, the cavernous darkness of a cinema. Yeah, I'm probably going to catch this one tomorrow night on the big screen. I'm probably going to catch this tonight on a big screen, Simon. Yeah, it's definitely worth seeing. It, the, the the technical quality of the film, the the way it's edited, the visuals, are just totally fill the the cinema space like few movies I've seen recently. So yeah, it's 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 getting some huge social media coverage. It's all over my Facebook feed and Twitter feed, and you've got directors coming out of the woodwork saying it's their film of the year. And um, I'm not going to argue with it at this stage. I, I really really loved it, and I'm going to make sure I get back to see it again at the movies. I reckon the main reason I'm pretty keen on it, for one reason, there's no time for love, Dr. Jones. 
<laughs> he's terrific in it too. He's grown into a very sort of compelling lead actor, Ki Hu Kwan, I think it's pronounced. But um, you know, great in the AKA great Short in, Round in Temple of Doom. So definitely worth seeing. It's called Everything Everywhere All Way at Once. It's not in wide release. It's in most cinemas, but not through all the multiplexes. So do hunt it out. It's, it's definitely worth it. In my mind, Short Round is like Stifler. You can do all the movies you want after this, but you'll always be Stifler. Yeah, that's very true. Very true indeed. You're going to have a look at one of the more interesting things on television this week. It's called Servant of the People. Spoiler alert, it's foreign. What Вы! И вы! How's your Ukrainian? Look, could you believe a story about an everyday school teacher, disappointed by the state of modern politics in Ukraine, running to be president of the country and actually elected? Maybe. That story has about as much credibility as a story about a comedian who created a TV series about an everyday school teacher in Ukraine who gets elected as president of the country, who and then turns and runs himself to become president and actually gets elected. <laughs> this, of course, is actually what happened in Ukraine. And now Vladimir, Vladimir Zelensky is the president of Ukraine and subsequently one of the world's most consequential figures. You may have heard about Zelensky's background and being curious about this TV show. Well, no wonder... Wonder No Longer, as it's currently streaming now on SBS On Demand here in Australia and elsewhere around the world, you've got Netflix screening it. In this show, Zelensky plays a history teacher who has the respect of his students, but not so much the other faculty members or his own family. One day, he gets into a heated conversation about politics with another teacher, and that's captured on video by a student who's watching on. That student then uploads it to YouTube and turns his teacher into a cultural phenomenon. That then leads to a crowdfunding campaign that gets the teacher elected as president of Ukraine. And ultimately, the show is very similar to a lot of other similar stories we've seen. So think about movies like Dave, and you get a good idea of this. It's a wish fulfillment fantasy about what could happen if the right every man was elected to be in charge. Watching it from my couch here in Australia, I found the show to be a little bit flat. Zelensky's charming enough, but not so charming that I was drawn into the show all that much. And the magic wish fulfillment scenario was a little bit lost on me. But all of this, I suspect, is really an issue of cultural difference. I get why the show was a huge success in Ukraine, but I also get why I felt such a distance from it all. And the show itself actually reminded me a lot of the US movie Swing Vote. That was a Kevin Costner film from a few years back about a hopeless guy from New Mexico who learns all about democracy when it's discovered that his single vote will determine the, who the winner is of the US presidential election. And the reason that film seems so reminiscent of this series is that I found myself appreciating that the democratic fantasy element of it all, but like Servant of the People, it just felt like it failed to really communicate the magical warmth of the scenario on screen. So worth a look because, you know, what other life story is like this? Like literally a guy plays the president and every guy, the guy plays an everyday person who becomes president on a TV show and then literally gets elected as president just a year and a half later. Mm. Like, that is just phenomenal. It's like Martin Sheen suddenly become a president. Like, we'd like to see it, surely, but, you know, it's never going to happen. It is It is a remarkable story. Um, it isn't a remarkable show, unfortunately. I We sat through the first you two episodes well? of this. Yeah. Um, and, look, I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here. I had the same problem with it that I have with Ted Lasso, in that it's such, and although I've been proven wrong 
by the events after the after the oh, is this, series. Is this the Mary Sue nonsense nature of it all? Yeah, exactly. You can't do anything I, I couldn't yeah. buy into it. I can't buy into this goofball American being allowed anywhere near an English soccer team. And no matter how charming and funny it goes after that, it, it becomes after that premise, I'm never fully on board for the show. I felt a little bit of the same in Servant of the People. Um in that it was such a, a sort of crazy notion. And yes, I've been proven wrong ever since that, but as a TV show, it, it just didn't seem real enough for me to take hold. And you're right in comparing it to things like um, Dave, which is a terrific film and which does overcome that kind of um, far out element to, to make all its message points work. Um, but Servant of the People didn't quite work for me. Um, he's very charming in the lead and those around him, especially in those family scenes around the table are very, very funny. And they, they have their moments as, you know, traditional sitcom families do. So certainly worth a look in light of, um, the way things are going. And I don't want to be a bummer here. I don't want to sort of bring the podcast down, but I did watch this show and I was looking at the buildings and I was looking at the young actors and I was looking at the, oh, the, so the, the grounds and I was thinking, oh my God, these are all the, you know, these have been laying to waste in the last month or so. So we're watching this amazingly beautiful country and this, these extraordinary people who, and I don't know where they are now. And it, and it, it did have a bit of a cloud over the series for me. Wow, what a bummer, man. I know, it is a bummer, but it was unavoidable for me. It was really was, so... So, and that was where I play the sting, and then we just get out of that segment. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, Simon, what else are we watching? What else are we talking about? What's going on in the world? Oh, and I do just want to mention very quickly, I mentioned it was a great week for fans of international, or as you call it, foreign films. Um, <laughs> there's a movie called Happening. It's set in 1963 France. It tells the story of a young student who has an unwanted pregnancy, and this is at a time when uh, abortion was illegal in uh, France. Um, it's how she has to deal with this. Uh, and it is a grueling, very tough, but beautifully told story. It's called Happening. And then we've got Farewell, Mr. Huffman. This is also set in Paris back in 1941. The story of an ordinary man and his employer, a very talented Jewish jeweler, and they're forced to, forced to strike a deal, which will upend the fate of all concerned. Boy, that sounded like it came from a press release. Um, it stars the great Daniel Ortiel in this one. So like I say, for fans of the... Um, uh, the foreign films, the subtitled films, there's some good stuff out there at the moment. And what are you watching, Simon? Well, I have been watching FIFA Plus. Now, this is a new streaming service which launched through the, launched through the week. As you know, I'm a insane football fanatic. Uh, football, some of you call it soccer. I'll call it football. Um, FIFA Plus has launched with over 2,500 hours of classic football action documentaries, and they'll be having live coverage of all the men's and women's World Cup action. Um, it's free at the moment, although I've heard they're going to try and monetize it in the weeks ahead. So uh, get on and have a look at FIFA Plus. It's just fifaplus.com slash en for English, so you can watch it in your language. What have you been watching? Yeah. Uh, look, I've been spending my week just trying to finish up some series. So uh, I've had a very hectic couple of weeks uh, gone by. So I haven't been able to watch as much as I have been traditionally. Mm. So I'm trying to finish out the last few episodes of The Dropout, which I hadn't seen yet. Uh, this week we had the final two episodes of Minx. Yep. Uh, I know on my agenda for later today, I'll be watching uh, Killing It. 
which you may remember I reviewed the first episode of a few weeks ago. That was actually a situation where they dropped the first episode as a preview mm. and then the rest of the series is literally launched in the last 24 hours. So I'm going to be jumping on that one pretty quickly and blitzing through that when I can. Very similar household you and I at the moment. We are also absolutely hooked on Minx. It's the most fun I'm having watching television in a long time. And I did binge the last four episodes of The Dropout, which was really compelling. Um, so they're two must-catch-up-with shows if, you, if you've got some time over the Easter weekend. Indeed. Simon, let's move on. So, Simon, this is where we talk about our middle bits. Mm. Wait a second. No, the show, the segment's called The Middle Bits because it's in the middle of this podcast. Excellent. It's not about our middle bits. Okay, good clarification. So uh, there's a really interesting article from The Guardian that's been floating around in the last few days, which is talking about the integrity of the opening title sequence. So like, we yeah, the theme song and, you know, the titles come up yeah. and whatnot. They, they set the in personality. A, they build sort of the, 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 the feel for the show that's about to come. Absolutely. And in the last couple of years, as we've moved on to streaming, there's been a number of folks out there who are more than willing to go over to the right-hand side of the screen and the bottom right and click that button that says skip intro and just go straight past it because they're watching a series, they're binging it. But they don't seem to appreciate that when they click the skip intro button, they're really just buzzing past like the thing that makes a show a show. Mm. You're absolutely right, and I'm guilty of it. Uh, I have done it in the middle of those binges. I've skipped past the the recap and the music up front. So, you know, I'm ashamed to say I've done it. Even on some of my favourite sort of TV credit sequences and theme music, I've, I've done it, and I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed, Dan. I've got no time for it. As far as I'm concerned, this is foundational to the television program you're watching. I'm okay with you skipping past like the closing credits. Like that's fine. It's just a black screen with text. But the opening titles are like an entry point into the show. It is the DNA of the program that you're skipping past. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're the sort of person who skips intro, you're not welcome in my house. (laughs) All right. So what are we doing with our middle bit? Where are we going with this? We're going to celebrate. Yeah, so look, let's celebrate the opening title sequences, the music, and I thought, Simon, this was just a great opportunity for us to talk about TV theme songs a little bit. Love it. And maybe talk about like the last five decades of television. Wow. And what we think are just some of the highlights in terms of our favourite TV themes or themes that we think are just essential to the art of the opening titles. I think that's a great idea. This is your idea. You came up with it only a moment before... The podcast came together, and I've got to say, you have done some extraordinary work in making this happen. I can't wait. I can't wait to hear your five. Um, where do you want to start? Okay, so we're going to go like decade by decade. Sure. So I'll do one, then you do one, and we'll sort of back and forth. Sounds great. So, look, there's a whole bunch of opening title sequences from the '70s that I wanted to like look through, but like I'm just, I just thought if I have to pick one of them, maybe the Maritime War show should be the one, mm. but no. I'm going to go for the one which is just one of my all-time favourite themes and probably the first sitcom from the 70s that I really fell in love with. And this is me as a kid in the 80s watching it as, you know, repeats years after. This is a show that I watched when I was way too young to be watching it (laughs) because there's some pretty adult material in the show and we can talk about it afterwards. But the thing I wanted to play here was the theme from Maud. was a freedom rider she didn't care if the whole world looked joan of arc with the lord to guide her she was a sister who really cooked isadora was the first bra burner angel that she showed up the country was falling apart betsy ross got it all sold up and then there's more 
mod. Okay, so that's the theme from Maud. This is a series that starred B. Arthur. It was a spin-off from All in a Family, uh, which is also set in the same universe as other shows like Different Strokes and a whole bunch of, you know, those sort of, se- uh, what's it called? Good Times, I'm pretty sure, yeah. is set in the same universe as well. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, and also Good Times has another great theme song. Some as well. great theme songs from that era. Yeah. Um, in, in doing this, uh, I, I acknowledge some of the great sort of, uh, half-hour sitcom theme songs. I've sort of gone with some of the more instrumental works, but uh, more, um, yes, uh, good times going into the next few decades. We'll touch on some other ones, but that was a great choice. I'm going to also go with a sitcom tune. Um, this one was a series that wasn't a huge hit here in Australia. It was a, a seminal work over in the US. It was one of the first series that James L. Brooks was the showrunner on. It's called Taxi. Sorry, you say like not a big success here, but you suggest that it might have been in the US. It barely skated by in the US wow, as well. Okay, but, let's know, have a listen. Great, great influential show. <laughs> What a beautiful bit of music that is uh, from Bob James. It's a piece of music called Angela. Actually came in episode three um, and the producers thought, hey, we love that. Let's make it the opening title. So it was. I love Taxi. I would also mention the theme song from SWAT. The Love Boat was, you know, obviously has lived on far beyond the series ever has. And one of my lovely little sort of instrumental themes was from a show called Family. So they were my sort of hits from the 70s. I came so close to doing the love boat. So, so close. <laughs> no, Maud's a great choice. Maud, no one's going to hear that. So, and then there's Maud. All right, let's move to the 80s. This is good. I'm enjoying this. So, there's something from like this sort of era of TV and the next two tracks, both yours and mine, very much uh, feed into this a little bit, which is that the opening title sequence, as opposed to now where we just skip straight past it, they're often like these sort of long sort of... Um, languishing sort of you know you sort of really have to spend like about a minute or two of just listening to musical like intros like melodic sort of themes not necessarily like loud pumping things like that mod theme from a moment ago Mm. but more things like taxi and that was not out of step and when you hear my song from uh the 80s uh really sad since that i'm gonna go for another sitcom and very much a cousin to taxi in so many ways we all knew this was happening right yeah we knew yeah Making your way in the world today Takes everything you've got Taking a break from all your worries Sure would help a lot Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go Where everybody knows your name So as the series Cheers goes on, the theme song does get sped up a little bit and it's less sort of uh, slow and ponderous as that is just there. But not like that sped up. It just gets a little bit quicker here and there. Mm. But yeah, like it just struck me as interesting that back then you really could have these much slower, uh, more thoughtful themes. Yeah. And that really ties quite heavily into your 80s pick. A gentleman named Mike Post was one of the great sort of 
TV theme song writers and 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 uh, composers of of the period. He did the Rockford Files. He did the Greatest American Hero theme, which was very close to being my pick for the decade. Um, he actually had a charted uh, a Billboard Hot 100 hit. It went to number ten um, and pl- went to number four on the Easy Listening chart. It was the theme tune from Hill Street Blues. Sorry, what was that? Hanchester about That was my trumpet with my thing. Um, yeah, it's one of the great bits of music. Mike Post. I actually had a an LP with all of Mike Post's themes on it, and and it w- there were just some beautifully lush, um, evocative sort of works. Uh, that little sort of drop in the music there that that comes in the middle of the Hill Street Blues theme still just uh, gives me tingles all over. I would also put in their Family Ties as one of the great sitcom themes of the 80s and the Miami Vice tune um, in 1984 was a game changer as well. Yeah, look, I mean, so many great themes from the 70s and 80s and like definitely going to the 90s, which is where we're heading now. Simon, you sent me the list and this was actually on my list as well. I was debating between this or another one, but... I went with the one that you've chosen as well. Okay. But I'm going to play the other one in just a moment regardless. Uh, only because I kind of think of every show in the 90s, like outside of maybe the Friends theme song. Yeah. Like this is probably the most iconic, certainly as far as dramas go. think i've overdosed on that theme oh it still just chills the blood <laughs> it, it's it's come to represent certainly as soon as you hear that you think of the the supernatural and of the uh the uh ufos and aliens and ghosts and all those sort of wonderful things that the the uh, x-files touched on um and by all accounts just in preparing for this segment the, the famous echo sequence in there that has become so iconic was created by accident um mark snow who wrote the music um sort of just lost his cool one night and he banged down on the 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 keyboard and the echo effect was born or legend has it so i would also we we can't not put in there seinfeld from the 90s it sort of lived on as the show has the west wing and for something completely different that was also a game changer angelo badalamentes from twin peaks yeah, I mean, Seinfeld technically is really a 1989 theme song. True. Yes, it came technically. at the end. True. Also, I really hate the Seinfeld theme. <laughs> I think it's just awful. <laughs> Gotta love it. Yeah, it's, it's just the worst. Uh, but going back to the X-Files, like, it is such a uh, cultural touchstone that not only was that theme song like iconic just for being the theme song, but it also became a bit of a breakout hit. Like, there were all the techno remixes of it that charted on the you know, top 20. Like, it was really quite a cultural moment but the theme song that i thought i'd lean on a little bit from the 90s is a animated show which was fairly well watched uh i don't think necessarily like a big sort of breakout hit by any means it actually got cancelled because too many adults were watching the show and they were really trying to sell some kids toys on saturday mornings but i wanted to play the theme song from the tick
It's so manic and silly. Don't. I've always just loved it. Never watched it. Don't know that theme song. That's that is a crazy <laughs> bit of, uh, and I and I guess that sort of is cut from the same cloth as things things like Ren and Stimpy, uh, which became a much more adult show, um, and obviously sort of fell into some dark sort of stories of the the production of it in the years gone by. But that also had such an iconic theme tune as well. So yeah, that's that's a good okay. one. The tick. I wouldn't didn't see that coming. I'm going to see if I can dig out a few tick episodes for you because I think you'll get a real kick out of that show, Simon. Okay, looking forward to it. So we're into the noughties now. What'd you have there? Yeah, so look, this is technically a 1999 show, but ostensibly I think of this as being a 2000s program. And this taps completely into the skip intro culture, but let's talk about that in a moment. You'll know what this is. Okay, so obviously that's the theme songs of The Sopranos. Yep. Now, why I really wanted to pick that one out of all shows was that we're thinking about skip intro as a concept where people are sitting down and are binging programs and they don't want to hear that same theme song over and over again. But the thing is, I came of age watching more binge watching all these shows on DVD. And on DVD, they didn't have the skip intro option. Mm. It was basically you'd watch episode after episode after episode and it would just kick in with that theme song. And so it became part of the binge experience. That every hour as the show resets and you're really starting a new story, you're hearing that theme song again. It becomes such a core part of the experience of watching through a binge. And one thing we haven't mentioned and which the Sopranos theme does perfectly is that it's cut together with some some stunning images as well. By the time the song ends and the car pulls into the driveway, you are fully invested in the show. Um, there were moments in the theme song for shows like MASH and, and I think the one I've got coming up as part of the Naughties too, I think it had a beautifully cut together the series of images behind the music so um yeah the sopranos was that perfect blend of image and and sound yeah i mean the thing with the opening title sequence is that it's trying to sort of defy your expectations of what a mob drama is because so many of the mob dramas would see in a base around new york city where the opening titles this start with tony leaving new york city and taking all the way out to jersey mm. so kind of really interesting in regards to that yep perfectly done uh, simon yeah uh, we're going to move on to a song that I'm going to play in full. Hang on, have I done my naughties yet? Uh, yeah, this is the this is what we're about to hear. Oh, okay, all right, let's hear it then. <laughs> okay, people will know this theme surely. <laughs> Now, of course, that is the theme from 30 Rock. Yes. And if you think, Simon, about the themes of, say, Taxi and Cheers and how quiet they were and then place that right up against 30 Rock with its very manic, very high-tempo opening. Yeah, like, I, I, I think apart. that sort of reflects the nature of the show, of course. I think it was more a rat-a-tat-tat show about jump cuts to comedy and funny moments, and, and that comes across in, in that theme song. Um and, a, and and another one that, that's cut together beautifully with the images. So yeah, obviously you would you would um, factor into an early Orties sort of look at the themes, the theme from The Office. And although I only sort of intermittently watched the show, I remember loving the theme song from Friday Night Lights, the Cole Chandler um, small town football drama as well. It was a really beautiful, evocative piece of music uh, that accompanied that show as well. <laughs> yeah. So. 
one of the themes that I almost played for the 90s was the theme to Spin City. Yeah, yeah. And the reason I wanted to pick that one out was that the Spin City theme goes for all about four seconds. <laughs> and it's just kind of like this sort of sound. And like that was actually part of a trend that you started seeing where networks wanted to shrink down the theme song entirely so that you just got like a couple of bars of something. Yep. And it was purely because they wanted to place more ads into the program. Yeah, for sure. They didn't think the opening titles were that integral. Yeah, it's you know, crazy. It, yeah, you look at 30 Rock and you see how they can be deployed so, so so quickly and, you know, with the spirit of the show in mind. All right, we're into the 2010s, the modern era. Where do you want to go with yours? Now, both of the ones that we chose, I particularly like as choices, only because there was a trend that started... Take, so, either Sopranos is my naughty, so I almost thought about The Wire. Yep. And both of them came from that sort of era of watching on DVD and, like... The one I'm about to mention is also a bit of a DVD watch that I think a lot of people sort of know it for and like binge watching it this way. But this kind of goes counter to what we started seeing towards the end of the noughties going into like the tens, which is this idea of opening titles as like metaphorical representations of the program. And for that, think about things like say like Game of Thrones, for example. You know, like they never, you never see the actors or anything on board. It's always like just gears moving in the background and stuff and like water used to swish around in some opening titles and i kind of hate them i kind of like things that are like really big bold and show actors doing stuff or actually really quite different and the one i chose is one that i think does a representation but in a very different way it's the Mad Men theme And you hear that theme and you know immediately what the visuals look like for the opening titles. It's a beautiful theme. Um, very similar to what they cut together for the opening of The Flight Attendant the last couple of years as well, the Kaylee Cuoco thing. It had a terrific opening sequence as well with the images. So, yeah, look, the Mad Men theme is, is a beautiful piece of music and a beautiful piece of art um, to watch how they, they make all those images come together. Um, my favorite... Uh, uh, theme from the tens is a show that has become a bit of a cultural touchstone a bit of a, 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 a tv phenomenon over the last few years just in the last week we've had the season four trailer drop uh succession came very close to getting the honor but i gave my uh favorite theme from the tens as stranger things i've never heard of the show <laughs> Man, I really loathe the whole thing up there. Let's fade that one out, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> this it came along right at a point when uh, '80s retro stylings were right in. This clearly mirrors the John Carpenter, Giorgio Moroder sound of the of the '80s, the synthesizers and the electronic beats. Um, just a terrific piece of music and uh, a terrific looking season four too. That trailer's a, a real piece of work. Yeah, I've actually deliberately stayed clear of the trailer. Yeah. I don't want to go on pretty cold on this one. But just a bit of a thing about the Stranger Things theme. Uh, back in 2016, I was working for a magazine that had weekly deadlines on it. 
And it meant that on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, there was always a mad rush to write the 10 pages or so that I usually had to um, add for the paper, uh, for the magazine that week. So I was always just like on this really tight deadline. So I'd throw the headphones on and I was looking for music that would inspire me to want to write quickly and fast and just get like a real urgency about it all. And the Stranger Things theme became that. So I used to listen to that theme on loop for like hours wow. every day because that it really just inspired that really me. Does, to, yeah. That explains a yeah. lot. You know what we've done? <laughs> we've gone through this whole um, TV theme and not mention maybe the most iconic TV theme of the last 50 years, the great theme song from The Simpsons. So we should put a special mention of that towards the end there because it has lived on um, ad infinitum and will continue to do so as um, well beyond the end of the series if that ever happens. So great bunch of tunes, mate. Great idea for a middle bit and some great stuff in there to, to keep looking at as the, as TV watching continues. After a middle bit comes an end bit. Slipped on my finger on that one. Simon Foster, at the end of the week, end of the podcast, every week, we like to talk about the movies and TV shows that are coming up. Yes. What's on the horizon? Yes, we do. There's some a couple of interesting movies debuting on the streaming channels. Uh, a show called Polar Bear, it premieres on Disney Plus on April 20. This follows a polar bear mum as she prepares to navigate motherhood in the uh, blisteringly cold terrain of uh, wherever polar bears live. It's narrated by the wonderful Catherine Keener um, and is uh, all part of the Disney Plus's documentary range, which, um, which are terrific to watch. There's been some incredible shows on there. And then on the Fox Docos channel on Saturday, April 16, is Kylie Infinite Disco. Pull on your glitter pants, Dan. We're going dancing with Kylie. It's an intimate one-hour concert special featuring all her greatest hits. I know you're a big fan. I know I'm a big fan too. That's on the Fox Docos channel, or you could watch it on demand. Yeah, I'll be staring clearing at this one just because I'm straight. <laughs> but you do have glitter pants. You can't deny that. I've seen you walking the streets in your glitter pants. It's true, everyone. We have pictures. Go to the Facebook page and I'll post them. <laughs> I'd be kind of curious about that myself, Simon. <laughs> hey, uh, there's a couple of TV shows that are probably worth mentioning. Uh, something which I think is probably the highlight of the week is the return of Russian Doll. And that comes back for season two. Now, there's two shows that are returning this week that I don't think there's really any need for you know, sequel seasons, like, made sense that, like, I don't know what else there is to say about Russian Doll after season one, but I'm perfectly willing to go on the ride with that one, because sure. I think for the most part, they stuck with that one from beginning to end. It was a highly compelling series. But the second one is The Flight Attendant, which I would say, I think it starts to lose a bit of puff right towards the end of that first season, mm -hmm. and I don't quite understand why there's a second season for it, but there is. Yeah, I'm a fan of her because of The Flight Attendant. I think I've mentioned previously that I didn't see any of the Big Bang Theory that she was in. So I'm coming to her straight with the flight attendant. Um, so I'm kind of keen for season two, but I'm also wondering, does she just get herself into the same kind of mess? How do they twist this story and make it make it believable? The words of John McClane are ringing in my ear. How can this same thing happen to the same guy twice? And I'm, I'm wondering if Kaylee Cuoco is going down that, that path as well. It's funny that's what came to mind for you because I was thinking a bit more Danny Glover and Lethal Weapon and I'm just too old for this shit. <laughs> Uh, also coming back this week is the final season of Better Call Saul and there's also The First Lady which is an anthology series by Showtime and it looks at all the various first ladies in the US and uh, as I was saying with anthologies earlier at least this one sounds like it's a structured reason why it should exist sure like it's a very clear purpose you understand what it is on a label as opposed to most of these other you know very ethereal ideas yeah interesting 
good one. Um, okay, so that's what's happening across our streaming and TV channels in the week ahead. Did I see? I didn't get the history sting. This is why I was having trouble with my stings last night. I didn't get to it. I'm sorry. You've reached a certain age as a man, and sometimes you have problems with your stings. <laughs> It's true. That's dangerously close to the truth for me. But anyway, this week in history. Oh, this got uncomfortable. Simon, what's happening in this history? Should I start here? Yeah, why don't you start? Uh, 2011, April 17, Game of Thrones, based on the fantasy novels by George R.R. Martin, premiered on one home box office. Do we know what R.R. stands for? Uh, really... Rich. Really rich. Um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> April 18, 2018, Black I, Panther I was trying to think is the of, first film shown sorry, at a commercial cinema in a commercial, a commercial cinema in 35 years in Saudi Arabia as cinemas are reopened. Yeah, I wish they got to see a better movie. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't think Black Panther is a very good movie. Yeah, I said it. I agree. I'm not quite sure what all the fuss. Well, I know exactly what the fuss is about, and we've discussed this previously. But I didn't think it was a particularly great film either. Yeah, I feel the fuss is slightly manufactured. Mm. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. April 19, 1948, the American Broadcasting Company, ABC, debuted. And then April 21, 2019, look at us coming full circle in the podcast, Ukrainian comedian Volodymyr Zelensky, star of the hit series Servant of the People, as reviewed by Dan Barrett earlier in the show, wins the country's presidential election and is crowned president of Ukraine. I bet he was thrilled that that happened about now. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. April 16, 1966, Anna Taylor-Joy was born. She is, of course, the star of things like Last Night in Soho, The Queen's Gambit, and the upcoming The North. I think you said 1966, and she's not born in 1966. It was 96. April 17, 1985, the ethereal Rooney Mara, who was in Carol, Mary Magdalene, and most recently in Nightmare Alley. She was born. Okay, I waited to talk over me entirely. So 1996, and now I realise The Last Night in Soho wasn't a period piece movie at all. No, not at all. I thought it was from the era. I thought it was authentic. Yeah, it wasn't. No, it's... April... April 18, 1988, Vanessa Kirby, who played Princess Margaret in The Crown, and people would love her from... Mission Impossible. Ooh, yes, Rogue, Rogue Nation? Nation was. I think it was Rogue Nation. She was terrific in that. Or was it the one after Rogue Nation? Whatever the last one was. Uh, it was hanging from a plane. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. But she was great I in don't it. Know. I interviewed her once. Really, really lovely person. Wow, she's fantastic. If you haven't seen Pieces of a Woman, which is a really tough show to watch, the opening sequence in that, uh, her home birth that goes wrong, is really, really powerful. But she's fantastic as the grieving mum. So I love Vanessa Kirby. I can't wait to see her in more stuff. Um, April 20, 1949, the beautiful Jessica Lange. Uh, She made a debut somewhat uh, sketchily in King Kong opposite Jeff Bridges and Charles Grodin, but she won an Oscar for Tootsie, and she was amazing in Francis. And Amber Heard was born. Let's not go any further on Amber Heard. Oh dear, not a fan, eh? Okay, end of the podcast. <laughs> uh, folks, thanks for listening to Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. You can find all my rants about Amber Heard uh, through that Twitter account, and you can start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Trashing Amber Heard, and you can find that at alwaysbewatching.com. Uh, it's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. 
And on Friday, you can find the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that very week. All right. I am on the Twitter at Simon R. Foster One. You can read my words at ScreenSpace. That's screen-space.net. Do visit the Screen Watching Facebook page. There's all sorts of cool things up there. Go to the Screen Watching YouTube channel. We've got an interview with Martin Dinglewall, the actor turned host of the new SBS food show Eating Plants. Um, and we also got the interview with Fernando Aranoa, of director of uh, The Good Boss. I've had a very busy week interviewing people. Oh, and do go to my Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival site where you can buy this, the cool new Sydney Science Fiction Festival t-shirt available in all sizes so you can be a cool kid too. I just wish Simon knew how microphones worked. (laughs) Of course I was off mic then, but people saw the t-shirt. Go to sydneysciencefictionfilmfestival.com and order yours now. They may have seen it if they're watching on the Facebook, on the YouTube Simon, but like... Podcast is really where the bulk of our listeners are. That's very true, I know. Do go to check out our YouTube channel to see my T-shirt. Sure. <laughs> uh, folks, speaking of podcasts, follow Screen Watching via your favourite podcast app. Load it up now, hit the follow button, and the podcast will be there whenever you need it. It's been a busy one, Dan Barrett. Thank you very much for a terrific show. Happy Easter. We'll be back next week Enjoy your, for more podcasts. Enjoy your Good Friday T-bone. <laughs>